It's Nehemiah chapter number 13. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 15. Now, of course, Nehemiah is detailing the sort of of spiritual house cleaning that he's done when he gets back to Jerusalem after his sojourn in Babylon. And he details several of the problems that he saw that had arisen during these days. Verse 15, he says, "...in those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath, bringing in sheaves and lading asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day." And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, What evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus, and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be open till after the Sabbath. And some of my servants set I at the gate uh, that there should be no burden brought in on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and sellers of all kind of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. Then I testified against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If you do so again, I'll lay hands on you. From that time forth came they no more on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of Thy mercy. Let's pray together. Lord, we love You. We thank You for this opportunity to be in Your house, Lord. We thank You for this wonderful group of people that have come in. They don't have to be here. They want to be here. They're here because they want to hear from you. Lord, I pray that you'd help me to get out of the way. Lord, hide us behind the shadow of your cross. May there not be a touch of flesh on anything that's done today, but may only that which exalts the name of the Lord Jesus prevail. And we'll be sure to give you the glory for it. Work in hearts, Lord, according to your will. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'm not going to take the time that I've took the last three weeks to review how we get to this place in Nehemiah 13. But suffice it to say that the temple has been rebuilt, the walls have been rebuilt, you would imagine that everything would be exactly uh, as it should be in the land of Israel and in the city of Jerusalem, that all of the uh, resources and freedom and ability to serve God. But we find in Nehemiah 13 that when Nehemiah arrives back in Jerusalem after a short sojourn in Babylon, he does not find things in good shape. In fact, he finds that the whole place is a mess. He finds that everything is going sideways. Everything, (coughs) excuse me, is going wrong. And the thought that we've sort of carried with us through this series and tried to nail to the forefront of our minds is that in this day of grace that we live in, we have everything we need to serve God. I got news for you. They ain't coming out with more Bible. What you got is what you get. Listen, we, we got, there ain't no, there ain't no second blessing we're waiting on, friend. When you got born again, the Holy Ghost, every bit of them took up residence in your life, and you have all the resources. The, the Paul said we have all things that pertain unto life and godliness. Now I got news for you, the devil ain't gonna get no more whoop than he is now until he's thrown into a lake of fire. What I'm saying is this, that we need to cut it out with all the excuses and we need to take care of business about getting our spiritual house in order. 
we can have everything we need and our life still be a mess. And you know, I know a lot of people like this, and you probably do too. They're just as saved as you are. They've got a church home just like you've got one. They've got a Bible just like you've got one. They've got entrance into the throne room of grace just like you do. But still, they seem to constantly be spinning their wheels, spiritually speaking. They seem to be constantly in a rut, and they seem to never make any forward motion or forward progress with the Lord. And very often, I think, the things that Nehemiah has to address are the very things... I hope you're okay with me coughing this morning. These Tennessee allergies. I told some of them at the door, and I mentioned it in Sunday school, I saw this. Uh, they said that the pollen's so bad that the meth heads are turning their meth back into Sudafed. Amen? <laughs> it's, it's springtime in Tennessee. So I hope you'll forgive me if I cough just a little bit. But the fact is, they've got everything they need, but their life is in a mess. And I think that the same things that Nehemiah addresses in the 13th chapter of the book of Nehemiah, the very close of the book, I think are the things that we're going to have to address if we want our spiritual house to be in order. We preached the first week about getting our associations right. Whenever Nehemiah comes back, he finds a mixed multitude. Uh, And the problem was that the Jews had intermarried with the Ammonites and the Moabites. And so this worldly influence had crept its way into the uh, land of of Israel. And so uh, Nehemiah says you need to knock it off. You need to bust up these idolatrous relationships and you need to sanctify and purify your homes. We need to get our associations right. And then uh, after the associations, he goes to the house of God and he finds a man by the name of Tobiah who is an enemy of the work of God and he's living in the temple. They've taken all the stuff that uh, should have been brought in and uh, all of it's missing. And Tobiah is laying up in the storehouse. It's supposed to be for the resources for the operation of the temple. And Tobiah is living there. And uh, Nehemiah kicks him out. He throws his stuff out on the front yard. We've been saying it's like an episode of Cops. Amen. They just throwing luggage out onto the front yard. He kicks him out. He has a cleansing that takes place in the temple. And uh, we need to get our sanctification right. Listen, if our house is going to be right, there's probably some things we're going to have to get out of our house. And there's probably some things we're going to have to put back in our house. Now listen, I, I enjoy when we preach a message on heaven or on the cross. And most of us have been saved for a number of years. We ain't going to get resaved. Amen. We can't. Couldn't get lost if we tried. But we can just rejoice in the goodness of God and what He's done in our life. Man, I enjoy that. But listen, that ain't this kind of message this morning. I'm talking about getting things right in our life practical steps that we can take. If we can't put into practice, then what are we doing here? And I'm talking about practical steps. There's probably some things sitting in your home that need to go in the trash when you get home. You say, what are those things? Well, the Holy Ghost will tell you. I can give you a list, but it'd be a lot more expedient for Him to deal with you and tell you. And there's probably some things missing in your home. There's probably some time spent in the Word of God and on the things of God, some godly influence that needs to be in your home. We need to get our sanctification right. Last week we preached on getting our dedication right. The reason Tobiah could move in, set up shop in the storehouse, was because the children of Israel had quit bringing their tithes in. And so anytime there is an absence of right doing, there will be a presence of wrongdoing in our life. If we quit doing the right thing, it won't be long. We're going to start doing the wrong thing. And so they had to get their dedication right. They had to get back invested in the things of God. This morning, we've read about this instance of the profaning, the breaking of the Sabbath day. 
And I'll go ahead and tell you that under this New Testament dispensation of grace, we don't observe the Sabbath day. I don't know what you did on Saturday, <coughs> but whatever you did, as long as it wasn't sin, uh, God wasn't upset with it. Uh, we are not commanded to keep the Sabbath. Christ is our Sabbath. He is our rest. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the Sabbath itself in this dispensation of grace. We observe the Lord's Day, the first day of the week. That's why we're here today, given today, Sunday, all day. My preacher, you say Sunday is the Lord's Day all day. You say, preacher, that's old-timey thinking. Yeah, a lot of things were a lot better off in old times, too. It's the Lord's Day all day, man. And I listen, I'm not saying you got to sit under preaching for 24 hours straight, although I'm game if you are. But I am saying that there ought to be something special about Sunday. Sunday ain't Lake Day. It ain't Hollywood Day. Man, it ain't golf day. Sunday's the Lord's Day. We ought to give it to the Lord. And uh, I understand we're not under the Sabbath. But I do find that this particular sin was indicative and representative of what had been a generational problem for the children of Israel. Uh, you know, the book of Hebrews says, in Hebrews chapter number 12 that we are to lay aside every weight, and listen to what Paul says, and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Now, some people take that to mean that all sin very easily besets fallen man. And that is true. There's sin all around us, and there's sin that disrupts and detours our life all the time. Others have taken it to understand that there are particular sins in your life, or particular sins in my life that are besetting sins, that seem to be a, a perpetual struggle in our life. I believe that either one of those applications could be made. But personal experience does tell me that there just seem to be some things that I struggle with. And you'll probably, if you'll be honest, admit that there's some things in your life, some sins that you just seem to struggle with. It's not just something that you've got a temptation to do one time, but it's like a, a hound dog that just is trailing you and sniffing after you and, and chasing after you. And no matter how much you commit yourself to the Lord, you can always hear the hounds baying in the distance. You can always feel that sin trying to creep back up in your life. That's the kind of sin that profaning the Sabbath day was for the children of Israel. And so Nehemiah has a very simple but a very effective solution for this. When Sabbath time comes, of course, the Jewish day started in the evening. The evening and the morning were the first day. When the evening comes and the Sabbath day is getting ready to begin, Nehemiah says, fellas, go down there and shut the gate. We're going to fix this thing once for all. I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning on getting your consecration right. Now, I told you earlier, a couple weeks ago, that the term sanctification and consecration, they're very, very similar. They both can actually be defined in the same way. It means a cleansing or a setting aside for service. But I find in my Bible that the term sanctification, it means that with an emphasis on cleansing. Cleansing, it's a very ceremonial word, cleansing. And the word consecration, very it means the exact same thing, but there always seems to be when it's used an emphasis on setting aside. And so we'll find that these two truths marry each other very well. But what we find in our text this morning is that Nehemiah said, look, we're the people of God. The Sabbath is the day for man's rest, but it's a day that has been set aside by God. And if we just keep struggling with this thing, we need to close the gate, we need to put away all this sin, and we need to set ourselves aside as different from the world around us. 
And I'm going to tell you this, listen, as believers, our, our, our spiritual house is never going to be in order until we put a difference between the clean and the unclean. It's what the priests in the Old Testament were commissioned with to do. Put a difference between the clean and the unclean. We live in a world today whose great mission and mantra is to erase that difference. I mean, in every way, shape, fashion, and form, they're trying to teach kids that they ain't even a specific gender. What's the purpose of that? It's to foster confusion. They don't want them to understand there's a difference between the genders. And it's a God-endorsed and God-endowed difference. And it's not something that ought to bring shame to one gender or another. But God created man and woman that they might complement each other, that they might complete each other, that they might beautify each other, that they might edify each other. And they're trying to destroy and disrupt God's order. They want to say there is no difference. God says, my, my people, for them, there is a difference. And not just in the matter of gender, but in the matter of all things. There ought to be a difference in your life and mine. So I want to preach for a few moments this morning on besetting sins. And on how we can address and how we can set ourselves aside for the Lord. And how we can finally deal with those pesky besetting sins. First off, notice the besetting sin in our passage. Look with me at verse number 15. When he arrives, what does he find? He says, In those days saw I in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in sheaves and lading asses, as also wine, grapes, and figs, and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. Now, this sin of profaning the Sabbath may seem inconsequential to you and I, but it was a holy command of God that He had set aside for the betterment of mankind. The Sabbath was not made for the edification of the Lord. The Sabbath was made for the edification of man. It was given to make man a uh, place for rest. By the time you get down to the time of Christ, the Pharisees had so polluted and perverted and corrupted the Sabbath that they had made it a burden. But initially, the Sabbath was supposed to be a blessing. It was supposed to be a time that God said, I want you to set aside to do no work therein, to rest, to get ready for the week that's ahead of you. I want it to be a time of, a time of refreshment, renewal, and re-energizing in your life. John found this to be a, a common pattern. Very often what God says is good for man, man does not want to accept as being good for himself. There's all kinds of things that God says, hey, you ought to do, hey, it's a good thing. You need to be reading your Bible. We say, I don't have time. You need to be in the prayer closet. We say, well, I see no sense in it. He says, we need to be in the house of God. We say, well, I'm just too busy. He says, we need to walk in, in uh, obedience to the Spirit of God. We say, well, I want to go my own way. Very often the things that God provides, not because He's just sitting up in heaven bored. Did you hear me? Not because He's just sitting up in heaven bored with nothing to do but because He loves you and wants your life to be the best it can be, those things we often push away and dispute with God about and argue with the Lord about. And this is what the children of Israel were doing. God had set aside this time to be a blessing, but they disregarded God's command and instead treated the Sabbath day like any other day. Now, here's a question I want to ask you. You and I both know why this is a sin. It's a sin because it's against God's command. And we'll say a word about that here in a moment. You and I, we both know and understand that this sin has had a prominent role in the history of the nation of Israel. Here's the question I want to ask. Why to them was it a besetting sin? Why was it that Israel struggled with this thing over and over and over and over again? I would, I would uh, venture this this morning. You probably know the sins you struggle with the most... You probably already know they're a sin. You could probably show me chapter and verse 
And show me why it's a sin. Here's the question I want to answer. Why is it that we struggle with them so much? Why are there certain sins that it seems easy for us to turn away from and other sins that it seems like they just hang on to us? I see three reasons. Number one, let me say this. They were invested in their sin. They viewed this day as being an economic opportunity for them. I'll tell you this, that their hobby was probably not treading wine presses. Their hobby was probably not bringing in sheaves and loading down beasts of burden. Their hobby was probably not going to market. So why are they doing all this? They're doing all this because they expect to gain something by it. I can sort of imagine the conversation that they might have had with Nehemiah as he walked through the market on the Sabbath day and saw this commerce taking place. He probably looked at him and said, you know this is sin. You know this is wrong. He says later that he testified against him. He's up there preaching a sermon and he's saying, you know this is sin. I can just hear him as they answer back. I can hear things like this. We have to do this. We have to do this. Our crops are not yielding enough as it is. We have to do this. We have to provide for ourselves. We have to find a way. I can see them saying, we'd lose too much by not selling. There's people here and they're ready to buy. In other words, they're saying, we gain too much. We have too much invested to walk away now. Very often the devil and the flesh and the world will all convince us that we derive too much enjoyment and pleasure, too much gain and benefit, too much popularity and prominence and power to walk away from our sin. Often the things that cling to us the most are one of two things. It's either a sin that we have convinced ourselves does no one any harm, or it is a sin that we have convinced ourselves provides too much benefit for us to turn and to walk away from. We say, there's no way. Preacher, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't give up that paycheck to be here on a Sunday. I, I could never walk away. Preacher, I couldn't, get, I couldn't drink that, or I couldn't walk away from drinking that alcohol in front of my boss, my co-workers. What are they going to think of me? I could lose my job. I could lose my position. Preacher, I, I, I could never set down rules in my home and try to make my home a godly home. What will happen if my wife gets upset? What will happen if my kids rebel? We say there's just too much invested for us to turn around and walk away from it. Here's the irony of it. Are you ready? And I wrote down some irony for each of these. Here's some irony. God wouldn't bless their crops while they were living in disobedience. In fact, they were losing by laboring. You know, here's the reality. You say, well, preacher, I I derive too much out of my life, out of the sin that I have in my life to turn and walk away from it. Yeah, just imagine what you'd have in your life if God was blessing you. Just imagine what you're like. Hey, you say, preacher, I, I could never set down godly standards in my home. My wife get upset with me. My kids, they'd rebel against me. Hey, imagine how wonderful it'd be if there was harmony in the Spirit of God in your home. Preacher, you don't understand. I, I, I can't tithe. I mean, I got, we're, we're at the limit as it is. And, and there's no way that, that I can afford to do that. Hey, imagine what your bank account would be like if God shined His favor upon it because you were honoring Him with it. What I'm getting at is this. You ain't helping yourself by disobeying God. My, my daddy told me years ago, you, you all pray for him. He ain't feeling well this morning. He had some dental work done. He looks like somebody hit him with a baseball bat. And that's what you tell the cops if they come asking questions. You understand me? Uh, my daddy one time, my daddy is not a man of many words. Um, but when I asked for advice uh, concerning tithing, uh, well, concerning marriage was really what it was about. He said this. He said, stay in church and stay out of debt and you'll be all right. Hey, there's truth there. But somebody made the statement, I can't remember who, made the statement to him one time, said, I can't afford to tithe. And he said this. 
He said, you can't afford not to. And that's true of everything as it relates to serving God. You see, you think you're going to lose out by turning away from this sin. But the fact is, you're losing out by indulging in it. He said, I can't do it. I'm invested in it. Let me give you a second thing. Not only were they invested in their sin, this is going to sound funny, they were infectious in their sin. Notice what it says at the end of verse 15. He says, and I testified against them in the day wherein they sold victuals. Now, I don't know about you, but typically I'm not an economist by any stretch of the imagination. But selling and buying is a two-party transaction. Am I right? Unless government's in the middle of it, somebody's got to want it, somebody's got to have it. Somebody that wants it has to have something that that other person wants more than that thing. You understand basic economics. It's a two-party transaction, which tells me this. Not only were they sinning in their besetting sin, but they were causing others to sin with their besetting sin. And I can just imagine the conversation when Nehemiah brought this up, that maybe they'd say something like this, you know, Nehemiah, there's other folks depending on us. We're just bringing this stuff in, but they're the ones that are buying it. What are they going to eat if we don't bring this stuff in? I can imagine saying, we can't let them down. They're expecting us to bring this food in. You know, very often a besetting sin is besetting in our life because we have yoked that thing to the expectations of others. Often when we sin, we participate in sin with other people. Now, there are sins that are under our own selves. There are sins that we commit that affect us more than anyone else. I would say to you, there's no sin that doesn't affect somebody. But there are sins that affect us more than they affect other people. But often the besetting sins in our life are things that we have participated in with others, things that we have involved others in. And we say to ourselves, well, I can't quit this now. What are they going to say about me? We do this together. We go out and drink together. We go out and party together. We go out and do this and do that together. What are they going to think? What are they going to think if I turn around and walk away from it now? We say, I've gotten others in this. Now what? I hear people say all the time, and I'm going to go ahead and say this because I feel liberty to say it. Uh, but I don't mean it in an ugly way. I hope you don't take it in an ugly way. But I hear people say all the time, well, preacher, we was going to be at church, but family dropped in on us. Amen. And I know, I know how family is. I know they do that. I know a lot of times they, you know. But can I just tell you something? Hey, listen, we got lots of pews here. And I'm not saying that there's not a time to find respite and a time to get away and spend time with family. I take vacations each year. I don't, I don't think it's necessarily wrong. But I'm saying if you got that family that keeps doing that to you, if you got that family, they just keep doing that to you, there's a quick way to fix it. And that's say at, uh, 5.30, we're gonna be headed out that door. Cause it's church night. And we got enough room in the car to bring you along with us. And we'd love to just continue this fellowship at the house of God. But very often we feel this sense of obligation. And we say, well, I can't do that. They wouldn't want to go. Well, they may not want to go, but that don't mean you ought not go. And they ought to love you enough that they recognize and respect that accountability that you have fostered between you and your church family. I'm saying this, we oftentimes with besetting sins, there will be things that we say, well, I can't walk away from that. I've gotten other people involved with it. How could I dare walk away? They're looking to me. They're depending on me. What happens if I turn and walk away? That's no excuse. The irony is this. I told you I wrote a little irony down. The irony is they were using the expectations of others as an excuse. And the others were probably saying the same thing. 
I, I, I would say if you walked the streets, if you went to the man that had brought the victuals to sell and you said, why are you here? Why are you selling? He would say, well, there's other people dependent on me. I can't turn and walk away. If you had gone across the street to the person with a little coin in their pocket and said, what are you doing here? Buying on the Sabbath day, they would have probably said, well, these hardworking people have brought their wares and their supplies in. I can't leave them hanging out to dry. And it creates a vicious cycle that can only be broken by someone having the commitment and the integrity to step up and say, I don't care if everybody does what's wrong, I'm going to do what's right. I I think they were infectious in their sin. Number three, I find this, they were enabled in their sin. The Bible says in verse number 16, there dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. I got one question for you. What in the world were men of Tyre doing in Jerusalem? What in the world were they doing in Jerusalem? Tyre is a coastal city. It's a Gentile city. They were from literally hundreds of miles away. Why were they in Jerusalem? I'll tell you why they were in Jerusalem. Because they had found out that this new uh, population of repatriates <coughs> had come back to the city of Jerusalem with some coin in their pocket that they had made from back in Babylon. They were ready to spend money. They got wind that there's people in Jerusalem looking to buy. So you know what you'll find? You'll find this. If you open the door to sin, the devil will always put someone there to enable you. They were enabled in their sin. There was always, there's always going to be. Are you ready now? There will never be an excuse to do right and there will always be an opportunity to do wrong when you're listening to the devil. Let me say that again. There will never be an excuse to do right. There will always be an opportunity to do wrong if you're listening to the devil. Without fail, he will put somebody in your life to enable you to do the wrong thing. It's part of the reason, man, and I, and I don't, I'll be honest with you, I have serious questions as an American citizen, as a, as a member of, of, of our society, of what social media is going to do to our society. I don't have no questions as a citizen of heaven. I know what's going to happen. Spiritually speaking, things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. And the Lord's going to take His church out of here. I know what's going to happen. But as a society, I don't know what's going to happen. Because we, you know what we have done? We have opened the floodgate to every reaffirming, reinforcing, confirmation bias opinion that we could possibly want. You know, I find this to be true, that if you if you step out and boldly declare you want to do something wrong, there will always be someone, and social media is a hotbed for it, but it's not just there, it's everywhere. There will always be someone that will stand up and clap and applaud and compliment your boldness and independence and courage. They're not going to be there when your life falls to pieces to pick you up. They'll be there to applaud your self-reliance. There will always be people that enable us to do wrong. You know what I found? There's sometimes, I want to be careful how I say this, man. The Holy Ghost is going to have to give you direction on this. But there are times in our life where the only thing we can do, there's people in our life that keep leading us astray and astray and astray and astray. And at a certain point, we have to recognize that it's going to be us or them. It's going to be us or them. And they're my, I'm talking about the enablers. I'm talking about the people that, that are always there to push us to do wrong. We ought to try to reach them. We ought to pray for them. We ought to love them. But we ought not let them drag us down with them. It was a besetting sin. I can hear them saying, well, you know, uh, others are going to sell anyway. So why don't we sell? They're just providing fresh options and experiences. These are fish that we can't get out of our waters here. They're not trying to do anything wrong. And I can hear them say this. 
almost like Lot being dragged out of Sodom and Gomorrah and begging, pleading with God to be able to go to the plain city of Zoar. You know what Lot said? He says, just a little one. I can just hear, I can hear the people on the streets of Jerusalem saying, I just want to try one more fish. I just want to try one more fruit. I just want to try one more item. These things are exotic. They're not things that we have. There will always be another fresh experience in sin. Until you're so hooked that you can't walk away. And then it'll all just dry up and die. I can hear them saying, Hey, listen, we don't have this stuff around. I just want... Once I've tried all the fish that the men of Tyre have to sell, well, then I'll quit. No, you won't. No, you won't, because then they'll have something else. And that's why this is a besetting sin. You know, the irony of it is the enablers could only enable because they were given entrance. We live in a day that is rife with psychological uh, terminology. Me and my wife were talking about this the other day. And people will say, well, I have a certain, I have certain issues in my life. Uh, like they'll say, well, I've got issues with my parents. Or I've got issues with, you know, uh, my, my uh, spouse. or I've got issues with this and that. Uh, can I let you in on something? So do all of us. And you know what very often that clinical language is designed to do? It's designed to absolve you of guilt for your own personal actions. Like people will say, well, I know my life is a wreck, but I've got daddy issues. I know my life is a wreck, but I got mama issues. I know my life is a wreck, but I got sibling issues. I got news for you. We all got issues. The question is, what are you going to let those issues do to you? Are you going to let them destroy you and derail you and set you aside? Or are you going to use them as a stepping stone of grace to say, hey, I'm going to let God grow me above this thing? We've all got issues, but very often the intent is to say, I've got issues, therefore I'm not responsible for my actions. You and I are always responsible for our actions. And people say things like this, well, I just got all these enablers in my life. Well, maybe you ought to shut the gate then. Because at a certain point, you can't keep blaming them if they're dragging you back down. At a certain point, you have to take personal responsibility to say, it's my sin, it's my relationship, it's my life, and I'm going to take back control of it. I'm not going to allow them to drag me down. Keep pointing over here. I don't mean you nice folks. It's just I got a handkerchief in my... There we go. Now I'll be pointing at them. I see the besetting sin. Let me give you a second thought. We're going to hurry. I see the blatant shamelessness of the people. Nehemiah, he goes to the nobles of Judah and he says this, What evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus... Did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet you bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. I see three things that he points out. Number one, he points out the concern with their sin. They may have saw it as harmless, but the reality is this was a sin against God's holy law. God had given this for their betterment, for their blessing. Not to be a burden, but to be a blessing to them. And they may have been able to dress it up and paint it up as though it was just an innocuous thing. It doesn't hurt anybody. Hey, we're just trying to make a little money. We're just trying to get by. We're just providing a service. Hey, listen, don't you realize every, listen, every single bootlegger, every single pornographer, every single prostitute, every single dope peddler is providing a service? Just because there's somebody that'll take you up on your sin, that don't mean it ain't sin. And that's part of the problem with this social, societal standard of morality. People say, well, preacher, what's going to happen if we legalize pot? It'll still be pot. Same thing that happened whenever prohibition was over and they re-legalized liquor. 
It didn't change what it did. It still wrecked homes, just like it always has. And we say, well, society accepts it. No, here's the problem. Everybody may have been doing it, but that just means everybody was doing wrong. God's Word is the standard. The concern with yours... See, you may say, well, preacher, this ain't a big deal. I've been, I've been struggling with this for a long time. I've been facing it for a long time, and I've been giving into it for a long time. I've just sort of got used to it. It's still sin. It's still against God's law, no matter how used to it you get. I see not only the concern with their sin, but I see the context of their sin. Can I just sum it up this way? Some of you say, I wish you would, preacher. They ought to know better. They ought to know better. Nehemiah says, man, don't you realize that this sin is the very sin that caused us to be brought into captivity? Don't you realize that this was one... There were two sins. There was profaning the Sabbath and idolatry. Nehemiah says, don't you realize this was one of the two sins that took us into Babylon? Listen, you may say to yourself... Well, preacher, it's it's no big deal. I mean, it's just a little something I struggle with. It put Christ on the cross. Put it in the greater context. It, it would be, I understand, we don't die and go to hell because of our sins, because Christ dealt with our sins on Calvary. But listen, even just one sin would have been enough to damn us to hell. And that means that sin would be enough to send a man to hell, were it not for the blood of Christ. I'm saying this, the greater context, they ought to know better. They did know better. But they had just convinced themselves it wasn't a big deal, that it wasn't a big deal. The context of their sin, they said, well, it's, it's no big deal. But they knew of the danger and destructiveness of this sin. The captivity had been due in large part to it. And God had, I don't know if you ever realized this, the captivity, you know what it was? For years the children of Israel had neglected the Sabbath days and the Sabbath years. It ain't no accident that God uh, lets them be in captivity for 70 years. That was God taking back the years that had been stolen from them. And you know what Nehemiah's saying? He's saying there's going to be a reckoning one day. You may say, preacher, I, I've been struggling with this thing. I've been giving into this thing for years. Yeah, and one day there's a reckoning that's coming. And you know what the great condemnation of their sin was? He says, yet you bring more wrath upon Israel. You bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. You know, it's bad that they did it. It's worse that they did it knowing what it does. And it's worst of all that they just kept doing it more. See, the fact is, you may say to yourself, well, preacher, you don't understand. I've been struggling with this sin for a long time. As though that is some sort of absolution. You know what that tells me? That tells me that you've had years of the Holy Ghost witnessing to you that this thing's wrong. You've had years of Bible preachers standing up, opening the Word of God, and showing you from God's authoritative Word that it's wrong. tells me that for years you've been face-to-face with that sin, and still you do it all the more. So what do we do? What do we do? Let me give you three things, and then my introduction will be done. I don't even think it's funny anymore, just to be honest when I say that. I feel a little sad when I say it. What did he do? Three things, very simply. Look at verse 19. The Bible says this, came to pass when the gates of Jerusalem began to be... uh, It says that when when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut and charged that they should not be open till after the Sabbath. Some of my servants set out the gates that there shall be no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. Here's how you deal with it. Here's the bold solution. You ready? Number one, shut the gate. Shut the gate. It's real simple. 
Whatever it is that gives you opportunity for that, cut it out of your life. Cut it out of your life. Hey, listen, the, you got a problem with alcohol? You might have to stay away from restaurants that serve it. You might have to stay out of grocery stores that, that sell it. I go to grocery stores that sell it. But if it's something you struggle with, you might have to avoid them. You listening? Hey, listen, you struggling with pornography? You might have to get the computer out of the house. You might have to get rid of the, the phone. You know what I've done before when I've counseled people that's struggling it, is with it in a marriage? I told them, get an app uh, uh, that locks down your browser and give your password only to your wife. That's shutting the gate, neighbor. I'm saying, if there's somebody in your life keeps pulling you astray, you might, I'm not saying you be ugly. I'm not saying you be rude, but you might have to limit the time that you spend with them. You might have to shut them out of certain portions of your life. Say, preacher, that's harsh. Yeah, that sin's pretty harsh too. It's been hounding you for all these years. Sounds to me like it's time to do something about it. Shut the gate. Let me give you a second thing. Not only shut the gate, you're going to have to stand your ground. This is interesting. Verse 20. So the merchants and sellers of all kind of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. like the way he says it. I think there's a tinge of pride and accomplishment when he says once or twice. Here's why. Then I testified against them and said unto them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth, surprise, surprise, came they no more on the Sabbath. In other words, sometimes you've got to get aggressive with your sin. You remember what Paul said to the church at Corinth after he had written to them concerning their sin? He described their response, their repentance. He he made this statement. He said, what zeal, what vengeance ye wrought. In other words, the church at Corinth, when they came face to face with their sin and when they dealt with it, man, they looked at it like somebody that had been offended. They looked at it like somebody that was on the war path. I'm talking about son. They looked at it, they looked at it like a housewife whose husband put the spoon in the wrong drawer. I'm saying they looked at it angry. And they said, I ain't got some of y'all laughing, some of y'all crying. They looked at it and they said, I'm talking about towards their sin. Towards their sin. They said, it's time to get revenge on our sin. Our sin has led us astray all these years. We're going to get back at it by walking with the Lord. We're going to get back at it by getting close. We're going to get back at it by getting clean. What I'm saying is this. There's times, don't think that just because you come down, it begins at this altar. It don't end at this altar. It begins at this altar. When you get up off this altar, that's when the work begins. When you come down to this altar, don't think you're going to cry and ask God's forgiveness and turn it over to Him and that you're going to walk out and never be afflicted by this besetting sin again. Fact is, they'll lodge about the house, about the walls for a couple days. They won't just turn around. The devil's had you in this thing for years. You think he's going to give up that easy? Say, preacher, what do I do? You double down. You stand your ground. You say, ain't no way I'm going to get back in that thing. I know what it does to me. I know what it does to people. And if I have to get downright plumb mean with my flesh, and with the world and the devil, I'll do what i got to do. Because it's time that we get this thing dealt with. One final thing. Look at verse number 22. Levi, or uh, Nehemiah says, I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should come up and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Then he says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this also. Spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. You're going to have to shut the gate. You're going to have to stand your guard because the devil ain't going to give up easy. And then once you get some victory, 
you're going to have to stay on guard. You're going to have to shut the gate, stand your ground. You're going to have to stay on guard because that sin's going to keep trying to creep back up. I see three ways. One with purity. He says, I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves. You know, I found this, that sin always likes companions. And oftentimes the entrance back into that sin that I've struggled with will be another sin. That will open the door. You know why it happens? I'll say this real quick because I ain't got much time. In my mind, and maybe it's just me, I've got a twisted mind, but I think of things in terms of a clean slate. In other words, when I have sin in my life, man, I know I'm not wrong with God. And I know I'm going to have to deal with that thing. And I know I'm going to have to repent of it. And I know I'm going to have to ask forgiveness. Now, you may think this childish. This way my messed up mind works. Sometimes I'll think to myself, if I'm going to do any sin, and I better do it now before I straighten up. You may not think that way. If you don't, God bless you. You're more spiritual than your preacher. That's the way I think. I think if I'm going to do anything wrong, now's the time to do it. Because I want to be sincere when I ask God's forgiveness. I want to be sincere when I repent. So let's have a party. If we're going to do it, let's do it right. And that's sort of the way my mind works. Now, your mind may not work that way. But I find that very often what that does, it's saying this. One sin births another sin. When we live in sin, it's real easy to live in sin. I find when I'm walking with God, it's a lot harder to make that decision to commit sin. Because I'm thinking, man, I'm right with God. I'm on praying ground. My Bible is is vibrant to me. Man, I go to church and I worship and I, I, I'm being used of God. And am I going to give all that up just for this moment of pleasure? Am, am I going to give all this up just to yield to my flesh? Am I going to give all this up just to partake in the world? But oftentimes when I do... I find it's easier to commit other sins. Purity. We've got to cleanse ourselves. Number two, it's going to take perceptiveness. It said that they should come and keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. You know what a watchman does? He sits up on the city walls and he just scans the horizon. And 99% of his job is just staring at an empty plane. But when the moment comes, he's ready. You know, in your life, there may be a lot of things that you say, well, preacher, I don't have to be that extreme in my separation. Maybe not. You may spend a lot of time staring at an empty plane, but that's sure better than having the city overthrown. You're going to have to be perceptive. You're going to have to watch because the devil's going to try to destroy you. And you know what the third thing is? Prayer. You know, Nehemiah closes this by praying. Lord, I've done everything I can do. So remember me, oh my God, concerning this also. And spare me, he says, spare me. This thing's been wreaking havoc in our nation for generations. Spare us, Lord, according to the greatness of thy mercy. You're going to have to stay on praying ground. I find this. If you ever attempted to sin and you pray about it, the answer will never be, yeah, go ahead and go do it. Now, you may ask your friends and they may say, yeah, go ahead and go do it. You may ask your spouse. You may ask your kids. You may ask your parents. You may ask somebody on social media, should I? And they'll say, yeah, go ahead and go do it. But if it's sin and you ask God about it, He'll always give you the straight answer. He'll always say, no, stay away from it. It's going to wreck you. It's going to wreck you. It's time some of us shut the gate on some things in our life.